At this time, it is very truly my honor to be able to present to you Buck N. from Midland, Texas. Buck has been in Al-Anon for 23 years. I can't even imagine being in Al-Anon for 23 years because I've been in Al-Anon for two. He says that he is fortunate. He has had more than one alcoholic in his family. In fact, what he told me is that they're cheaper by the dozen. Buck tells me that he's a geologist. Um, I think what he really does is drill oil wells. He may play around with a few rocks here and there as well. The name of the group that he belongs to in Midland is the 710 Al-Anon group. We are very privileged to have Buck with us. He arrived last night and his luggage did not, but it caught up with him this morning. So he seems to be intact and all in one piece. And at this point, I will turn the meeting over to Buck. First things first. How many of you all here for your first conference? Raise your hand. Let's give them a hand. You're the ones we're putting this on for. You know, uh, somewhere, probably not too far from here, somebody is drinking or shaking. And somewhere else, somebody is bordering on convulsions. He or she doesn't know it. And somewhere else, a little boy or a little girl is suffering under the hell of an alcoholic father or mother. And they're not here. They won't be here next week. They won't be here next month. In fact, they're members of the vast percentage of people that do not make it to this program. You and I are the fortunate ones. And if you came here this evening to be entertained, then I hope you get absolutely nothing out of it. But if you came so that you might better qualify yourself to carry the message to those out there who still suffer, then that's good. I'm glad you're here. Each one of the meetings should qualify us a little better to uh, carry the message when the occasion presents itself. Because by keeping this program, by giving this program away, we keep it. My name is Buck Newsom, and I'm an Alamont. Hi, I'm the husband, the brother, the brother-in-law, the son, the grandson, the father of, the father-in-law of alcoholics. <laughs> I can't say that but once. Uh, I sure as hell didn't get here by mistake. I... My, my sponsor is Marceline White, who some of you know, and I know Marceline is to love her. She's speaking this weekend in Calgary, Canada, and I'm here with you people this evening. Uh, I'm given the real reason why I'm here in the 12th step. It says having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message. 
It also tells me in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that my real purpose is to fit myself to be of maximum service to God and to the people about me. Incidentally, in 20 years, 23 years ago, there wasn't too many pieces of Al-Anon literature around, so we had to use the big book, and I still do. And uh, I don't apologize for it. We did the best we could. Thank you. We did the best we could with what we had to work with at the time. Now, as I stand here, my thoughts can literally fly, but I have to encode these thoughts into sounds. And you, upon receiving these sounds, decode. If we don't have the same thought impulse on you on decoding that I have on encoding, then we're no longer communicating. So communications is one of the biggest problems in the world, and it has been defined, and you won't find this in the dictionary. It was in a professional journal that I received once. It says, communications is the art of transmitting thoughts, feelings, or ideas by writing, talking, or acting in such a manner that understanding results. And that's what it's all about, you know, acting, you know, body language, and so we're communicating when we do things like that. Okay, my story could be like, you know, could be real short and sweet. That is, A and Alanon and Alateen open the gates of hell for the Newsoms and let us out. And for that, I'm very grateful. But I didn't fly some 2,000 miles to talk for about five minutes and sit down so you can settle back and get comfortable. There's more coming. <laughs> you know, this program is also kind of not, not like a restaurant where I can place my orders and things are brought to me. It's more like a cafeteria. I've got to help myself. And herein is the basic principle of Mother Nature. That is, output varies directly proportional to input. It's a completely impossible for me to get anything out of this program if I don't put something into it. I used to be scared when I'd get up behind this podium. Uh, found I'm not scared anymore. I'm a little nervous, but this is transitory. I was scared, and I didn't know why until I found out in my fourth step, my first fourth step, somebody helped me with it, and uh, that had some experience. And the reason I was scared was I was fearful of the possibility that I might say something up here that would give you people the impression I'm not as good as I think I am. <laughs> okay. We, uh, when we came in, they told me to, uh, incidentally, I, forgot, I almost forgot to tell you, the first meeting that I went to, I don't remember who talked or what they said. Uh, the only thing I remember about it was that there were about 20 women in that room and one man sitting on the back seat. I don't remember what the, who talked, anything. The only thing I remember was that after the meeting was over, this guy came up to me and said, My name is Blackie Liggin, and I said, I'm glad to see you. I thought I was only son of a bitch in Midland that had a drunk wife. <laughs> there was a... And also, there's a fellow there in the 710 now that's been sober about 20 years, and he talks real slow, and he walked up to me one day and said, and I'll try to imitate him, Say, Buck, since alcoholism is a disease, you got so damn many alcoholics in your background, did it ever occur to you that you might be a carrier?
So I'm known as the carrier, yeah. I met him out at the airport one morning here about a couple of years ago, and he said, he said, where are you going? Oh, I'm going off talking. I'm going off talk somewhere. I don't remember where it was. He says, going up there to infect some more good folks, huh? <laughs> anyway, before AA and Alan, my mother and dad divorced when I was just a kid. Dad was an alcoholic. He's also a medical doctor, guaranteed. Uh, graduated from Galveston Medical College in 1897. And my mother remarried to a West Texas rancher, and I was raised on a ranch in West Texas. I'm sure you wouldn't gather this with the way I talk. <laughs> I made some remark the other day. I said, well, I was about as, as uh, common as pig tracks. And some lady sitting there said, I never saw a Texan that didn't have any, some of those comments to make. Well, I believe it was you, wasn't it? <laughs> Anyway, I couldn't get along with my stepdad at the ranch, so I decided I'd go to college. I went to school at Texas Tech in the Panhandle, at Lubbock, Texas. This was, yeah. <laughs> and uh, this was along about the time World War II was coming around, and my, I moved next door to fell in love with and married Francis, my alcoholic, who incidentally passed away about two <clears throat> Two years ago, not directly as a result of alcoholism, but indirectly as a result of alcoholism. This, as I said, this is about the time World War II was coming around, and uh, I volunteered in the aviation cadets, was commissioned a pilot, and I went overseas as a co-pilot after 16 missions over Germany on the B in the B-17 as co-pilot, and I flew 12 missions as first pilot. I was shot down on my 28th mission over Leipzig, Germany, and ich bin ein Kriegsgefangenen. I was a prisoner of war for approximately a year. I thought maybe this guy would respond. <laughs> uh, I took the fourth step in combat, not being aware of it in its present identity, but the odds were pretty good that... Uh, I wouldn't make it through because a lot of my buddies went down. I saw a lot of them killed. And uh, so I did take the fourth step in combat. I want to try to tell you what the difference is for me between the spiritual experience and the spiritual awakening. This is the only thing that's been changed in the 12 steps. It used to say having had a spiritual experience, this was changed to having had a spiritual awakening. For me, there is a difference. A spiritual experience, and I'm going to try to paint a verbal picture. It's totally impossible to do it, but I'm going to try to paint a picture here with words so you can get an idea of what I experienced. This was on my third mission over enemy occupied territory. I was flying as a co-pilot. We were in the, this was the lead ship, and I was flying in this ship right here. There was another ship right over here. There was three ships right underneath here. That was the squadron. The three squadrons went together to form a group. The groups went together to form the division, the division went together to form the wing, and the, then the Air Force, and so forth. Anyway, we were on the bomb run. It was over the Danish Peninsula, and uh, the two ships off which we were, the ship off which I was flying, remember, I was a co-pilot. I wasn't doing the actual flying. I was looking at the ship that we were, we were flying off of. I happened to be looking at it exactly at the time it received a direct hit. The ship exploded 
and uh, into, you know, a million pieces. And portions of the debris caught wheel in on the ship on my left, my left wing, and it in turn exploded. Now, this happened just, just like that, and it was over with. But a lot can happen emotionally and mentally to, with you when something like this happens. Uh, combat, for me, can be just best described as hours of boredom and damn hard work interrupted by moments of stark total terror. And this was one of those moments of stark total terror because I knew this was the end, you know. This was what I thought. Uh, well, I equate that to being over here in this end of the spectrum where universe, where total terror exists. Okay, now what I'm going to tell you, hadn't happened, I think I might possibly have died of, of uh, heart failure. The result was that I was tuned in on the most beautiful music I've ever heard. I've never heard it before, and I have never heard it since. I wanted to many times, but that's my will. But this this is different to any, any type of earthly music I've ever heard. And the results of this music were that I was transported clear across the universe, figuratively speaking, to this point, at complete peace with my Maker facing death. Now, as far as I'm concerned, that's the ultimate of serenity, to be at peace with my Maker facing death. I do not know how long this music lasted. It might have been three seconds. It might have been 15 seconds. It might have been longer. All I know is that I experienced it and I was not afraid to die. I knew that everything was all right on the other side. This was a spiritual experience. It came to pass. It did not come to stay. Like the spiritual awakening that's come about as the result of these steps in my life has come to stay. Unlike the experience. So, I'm sure that many of you have read and possibly heard statements to the effect that God is dead. I can assure you if God is dead, he died since my third mission. <laughs> I returned to the States in 1945. Uh, I am a rock nut by profession. Went to work for the Gulf Oil Corporation. I recently retired from them in 1980. Went to work for an independent and am still in the profession of the oil industry. I'm I'm an I'm an Al I'm an Al-Anon nut too, but I'm not a normal nut because the world is full of normal nuts out there. I don't have this program, and some of them are dangerous. <laughs> they really are. They're dangerous. Francis and I went to the uh, social drinking routes, you know, because I was an officer in the Air Force and. We were all living pretty high those days, and uh, so the, the trouble with trouble is it seems like it always starts out like fun. All my life I've been affected by my reactions to the dis-ease of alcoholism. I can now be at ease around my alcoholics, whether I'm across the room or across the nation. Distance has nothing to do with it. Distance has nothing to do with it. You all know, heard some Alan say they felt like they were in a skin case in a shell when they came in. I was more like this. Uh, you know, when you're doing some sort of work, you're in the garden or the yard, <coughs> your hands are involved, and you get a blister on that as a result of friction. 
Okay, if this work is to continue, this blister is going to be replaced by a layer of callousness. Okay? When the layer of callousness gets so thick, then it's not going to hurt anymore. This was the way I felt around my heart. I was encased in a layer of callousness. I was calloused. I wouldn't have given you the time of day 24 years ago. I really wouldn't. I had no use for you. But thank God, uh, y'all loved me when I was unlovable. You tolerated me when I was intolerable. And you loved me when I had no right to be loved. And for that, I'm very grateful. I do not know exactly how many times Francis went to the hospital for alcoholism and or drug addiction, but I checked through the records about the time I resigned and retired from Gulf, and 57 times was something that came up. I don't know that this is a record, but it's a hell of a good average. I'd like to express an opinion at this point. I do not think it can ever be accomplished chemically or with a scalpel, that which has to be done spiritually. I ran myself down. In 1956, I hit bottom. I, we were living in Roswell, New Mexico at the time. I ran myself down trying to take care of two small boys, a sick wife, and a job. And I became easy prey for the first bug that came along. And this particular bug happened to be bulbar polio. I went to the hospital with polio, and I was seriously sick. I don't have any trouble with the second step where it says, Can you believe that power greater than says could restore us to sanity? Because while I was in the hospital, my wife took drunk and joined me. I can assure you, if I could have gotten to her, I'd have killed her. But I was paralyzed. I couldn't get out of the damn bed. But I don't have any trouble with that second step. Okay, mild insanity. I've engaged in this, possibly some of you identify. Spending money I don't have to buy things I don't need to impress people I don't like. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people are verified. <laughs> One afternoon, this is violent insanity. One afternoon I came in from work. We were living in Roswell at the time, and I walked through the front door, and Frances was drunk. And not staggering drunk. She was, she was drunk. She's mad at me because she's drunk. And she walked up to me and she slapped me, not once, but twice, with open hand. Just wham, wham. Well, I'd rather somebody hit me with their clenched fist than to hit me with a, a slap, you know. This is total insanity for me, what I'm going to tell you what I did. Because I lost complete control. When I, when I, came to, I was in a blackout. When I came to, this gal was on the floor, and I was a straddle of her. And I had my hands around her in the neck, and I was choking her to death. Now, in a few more moments, and I'd have killed her. I can't understand how people can kill in a blackout, because I almost did it once. And this terrible. I have not lost my temper to that degree since then. <laughs> Incidentally, Francis hadn't slapped me anymore, either. <laughs> Well, it became obvious to me, and I, that, that time after, right after I got out of the hospital, it became obvious to me that if I was going to survive, and I'm talking about physical survival, I had to get out. So I sued her for divorce. But 
she conned me out of it. And I'm grateful in retrospect that she did because I almost missed this program. Later on, I was to meet my own sister down the road in alcoholism, and I would have turned my back on her. And as recent as 1968, my own son on alcoholism and drug addiction, I would have turned my back on her, on him. You see, if I'd been successful in divorcing her, all of this wouldn't wouldn't exist. I would not be here talking to you people. So, you know, I'm glad somebody knows something more than I do. Thank God. Uh, Francis put on the jug in 19, uh, about 1958, uh, 59, somewhere along there, and picked up drugs, and it's our experience that she turned loose a pussycat and grabbed a tiger by the tail. We moved to Fort Worth from Roswell in 1957 and then on into Midland in 1959. Thereafter, A.A. and Al-Anon, in 1962, we started going to AA in February of 1962. Now, we came running from the alternative. Didn't know what the hell it was, but it was bound to be worse than what we had, so we are willing to try a lousy place like Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I'd never heard of Al-Anon. Didn't even know it existed. But it's a good thing that good motives aren't necessary, isn't it? God would all be would all be lost if you had to have good motive. You just have to do the things. I can act myself into good thinking. I cannot think myself into good acting. Never have been able to get a little more into that later on, I hope. When I first came in, I was more like a starving man. You know, what would you think of someone if you invited him into your home to break bread with him? He's suffering from malnutrition and he refuses to eat until he understands all the complex processes of digestion, such as calorie absorption, you know, so forth and so on. You'd think you're nuts. You'd be right. So it is with your soul. Don't quibble about the things you don't understand. Just partake of the bread of life and live. A.A. and Al-Anon and al the bread of life for the alcoholic and his family. So sensitive is a human being's soul that only a breath of love can call it into conscious existence, and so big is a human being's soul that only God can fill it. Because love is the one thing that God reserved to conquer every man. Reason he parries, fear he answers blow for blow, and future interest in each of present pleasures. But love is the one thing against which the hardest heart will eventually melt. This is not theory. I'm sharing my experience with you. In about 1970, we came in in 62, and Frances had eight years of continuous uninterrupted sobriety, and then she decided she'd take a little weekend vacation from her alcohol-free diet and get back into the program on Monday. She got back four years later. And long about that time, I found out there's not too much difference between everything going my way or everything coming at me. One big difference is the direction in which my attitude is facing. Now, I can say that in another way. Ships ply east and ships ply west by the self-same wind that blows. It's the set of the sail and not the gale that determines the direction it goes. I want, I want to uh, tell you 
little bit about what the steps mean in my life. It's a table of spiritual principles prepared before me in the presence of my enemies, because my enemies are not out there. They're not over yonder, not around that corner, and this is not a secret weapon I'm going to pull on my enemies. It's prepared before me in the presence of my enemies, because my enemies are right in here. And this spiritual principle is prepared right before me, the 12 steps. Abraham Lincoln said, a man's about as happy as he makes up his mind to be, and conversely, I can be just about as miserable as I make up my mind to be. These steps are also impersonal. If they'll work for me, they'll work for anybody. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I'm going to be. But I'm the best button user I've ever had. And it seems like my growth has been infinitesimal. Somehow or other, all you people are shaped up. I'm not perfect. I won't be for six or seven months yet. <laughs> this is seriously, though, this is the only way we can measure ourselves, is measuring ourselves against the way we used to be. Because if I ever get trapped into measuring myself against you, I'm measuring how I feel against the way you look. And I'll always end up short on the short end of the stick on that one. So. I measure myself against the way I used to be. Then I can see some growth. Okay. The uh, first step, admitted a powerless over alcohol, that our lives become unmanageable. You know, God, as I understand him, the Son of God, as I understand him, said, uh, of my own self, I can do nothing. It's the Father within me that doth the works. And he was followed by the Apostle Paul, who said, I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I know that I should do. In this respect, my life is unmanageable. He didn't say it in exactly those words. The way he said it was, the good that I would, I do not. The evil that I would not, I do. There is no help in me. So if between Christ and the Apostle Paul, their powerless and their lives unmanageable, folks were in pretty good company. <laughs> the second step came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I don't remember taking this step. This is something that happened to me. And the way it happened to me was I came. I eventually came to, you know, eventually came to believe. I didn't get here believing. I came, eventually came to, then I came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. The third step made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand him. These are all important words without which I do not think this program would ever have gotten off the ground, and that's God as I understand him, or God as you understand him. Okay. Made a decision. I made a decision when this lady contacted me by phone several months back to come over here and talk to you people. But nothing happened until I took action on the decision. Yesterday morning I got up. Five o'clock my time, three o'clock your time, and drove out to the airport, caught a plane, flew to Denver, caught a plane, flew to San Francisco, caught a puddle jumper, and flew out <laughs> to this one. Okay, that's the action taken on the decision. Nothing, nothing happens until I take action 
on the decision that had been made. So I'd make a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand him. Incidentally, God as I understand him is not dumb. I don't have to give him instructions. I do, but I don't have to. Uh, God as I understand him is not God, no more than my understanding of you is not you. Never has been, never will be. God as I understand him is the same from everlasting to everlasting. I grow in understanding. I change. God doesn't change. I got a friend that used to be in Abilene who's a who's a Baptist minister. He's not a Baptist minister anymore. He's a, a uh, counselor, and uh, he's also an Alamon. And he has an ability to weave beautiful words together. And he said one day in explaining this, he said, "This guy came in our office one day. And said, I came here to tell you that I don't believe in God." And John said, "Well, what else is you?" And he said, well, he had to make his point, so he kept on mouthing, and finally John says, okay, boy, go on, get on top of the highest hill and shout and scream at the top of your voice, there is no God, there is no God, and you won't hear anything coming back but the hollow echoing of your own voice brought by an aimless, drifting, wandering wind, and God won't climb down off his throne and abdicate because you don't believe in him, and you can't sit on it because your butt's not big. I know what it's not because I've done that. So, so if I leave off what it's not, what's left has a good chance of being God's will. This story helped me to understand when I was first in the program, and I'll pass it on to you. It's about a little woodpecker who was pecking away at a tree in a lone clearing one day in a gathering thunderstorm, sent a bolt of lightning, splitting the tree from top to bottom without harming the little fellow. And the birds came around from miles and says, How'd you do it? How did you split the tree? In reality, all he was doing is what he was supposed to be doing, where he was supposed to be doing it, and God did the rest. Okay, God's will for me is doing what I'm supposed to be doing, where I'm supposed to be doing it, and he will do the rest. And I'm doing right now what I'm supposed to be doing, and so are you. This is God's will for us. The best reason for not taking the fourth step before I took it was the fifth step. I'm not about to tell anybody, you know, the exact nature of these wrongs. Okay. Uh, now that I'm on the other side of it, looking back, there'd be no reason for the fourth step if the fifth step did not exist. Because self-knowledge alone won't get it. It's an integral portion of, but it will not. It's not the final answer. I like Clancy's comparison on this, and I'll pass it on to you. Maybe some of you haven't heard it. He says, self-knowledge is just like being on the deck of the Titanic, and you've already collided with the iceberg, and the hole in the prow is 68 feet in diameter, and water's gushing in for a rate of 268,000 gallons per minute. Exactly 14 minutes and 28 seconds is going to be all over. That's self-knowledge. The problem is, how do you get off of the damn ship? <laughs> the way you get off of the damn ship, there's a fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth step. The way you keep getting on another one, just like it doomed, is the tenth, eleventh, and the twelfth step. Well, I, went, I took the, the fourth step to the best of my ability. Back after I'd been in the program a couple of years, something like that. And the way I want to tell you about taking the fifth step is not the way to do it. But I'll tell you how not to do it. Then you can say, well, I know it won't work that way. 
The first time I took for the fifth step, I took it with a man in our group. My attitude at that time was I didn't give a damn whether he approved or disapproved of anything for me that I was telling him, so therefore me there was nothing ventured and absolutely nothing gained. Nothing gained. The second time I took the fifth step, I took it with my sponsor. And I rationalized. This is all in hindsight. I rationalized like this. I'll, now that I've gotten all this trash out of the way on my first fourth step, step, I'll take the second one with you, Marceline. Well, I was trying to guide, trying to maneuver, trying to control her love for me, which is for free, and love for free has no desire but to fulfill itself, to love for free. And uh, I went into a long dry spell after that, the likes of which I'd never been in before. It seemed as if my whole being... My, my struggle to get out, of, get out and get out of it became a harness that bound me into it. I could not get out of it. I was guided back to my sponsor in 1968. And in the process of a conversation with Marceline, she said, Buck, I think you were cheated on your first fifth step. Well, now, how dare her to say that, you know. After all, I've been in a program, too, that's uh, six years. I ought to know something better now. I didn't like it. But... I didn't like it at the time, you know. I know the end result's going to be all right. It always has been. So I went back to Midland, and uh, this began to eat on me. We were living at Lake, or uh, Marceline and Bob were living at Lake Whitney, in uh, South Fort Worth, uh, about 60 miles. And I went back to Midland, which is 300 miles to the west. And uh, this began to eat on me, and I finally told Marceline at a conference, which was Shortly after that, down at Lake Whitney, I said, Marceline, I have to talk to you. And I went up into the, uh, we went up into the treehouse, which is built up about the second level, but it's outdoors, and it's anything but a treehouse. It's a beautiful place. It's where you can look out across the lake. And there, in this environment, I took a person that I love and I admire and I respect and think the most of, and I told her the worst of me. Now, ego cannot stand this environment. This is the complete deflation of ego at depth, just like it talks about. And I thought our relationship at that time was going to be severed, you know, it would be just like a chop on the chopping block, that she'd go her way and I'd go mine. When I got through, I expected the worst. And Marceline says, Buck, I want you to go off in prayer and meditation for a while. And she said, I love you just the way you are. I went off in prayer and meditation, and then this, this happened to me. This, it felt like there were waves, giant waves, coming in and washing me clean, you know, from the inside. And uh, I realized what had happened. I didn't know until after it was over what had happened. This woman, this woman did not have to forgive me. She had never condemned me in the first place. Well, who in the hell had condemned me? I had condemned me. I was a judge, the jury, the prosecuting attorney. I'd already tried the case, found myself guilty, pronounced sentence, and serving time. I could have not forgiven me, but she had. Now, I want to tell you, folks, if God is dead, he died since I took the fifth step properly.
Long about this time, number one son, who is now senior research chemist in uh, Penzoil Research Environment north of Houston there. And uh, he's now calling. He just got back in there about 60, about 90 days ago, called me up and told me he's going back. His wife's now calling. She got about a year's sobriety now. She got more than he does. But uh, this was back in 68 when he was first uh, experimenting with this. He was in college at TCU at the time. And his mother and I went in uh, to talk to him one night. We set up most of the night in the motel talking to this young man because he, he was trying to bring down condemnation upon himself and we refused to condemn him because we knew what he was doing. He didn't, but we did. Now, I'll give you an idea of what he was doing. He was puffing, popping, shooting up, dropping, and drinking. At the same, not at the same time, but he was trying them all. Mainline, the whole ball of wax, grapes, vines, leaves, and all. You know, he tried it. Uh, we left the, left the decision up to him, says, well, you can either come home and get your job or you can drop out of school and, and you know, see what happens. We dropped out of school and uh, next morning he said, I'd like to come home and just be your son for a while, which he did, and go to AA. And he started going to AA then. This was before he was married. Uh, anyway, he uh, started going got him a job, then uh, the end of the semester came around, he says, I'm going back to school, Dad. I said, well, come on, oh, we got some talking to do. Said, okay. So now, first of all, I want, his mother wasn't there, I sat him down in the den, I said, first of all, I want to tell you, I love you. This is the most important thing, but you're free as a bird, you're free to take pills, drink or take pills until you die, but you can't do it without knowing that I care and I stand ready to help when you call. But there's one thing I will not do for you, Buster. He said, what's that? I ain't going down the drain with you. You're going by yourself. The old dad ain't going to pick up any check or get you out of trouble. Just remember that. And he already knew that because I've already, from previous experience with that. So, he went back to school and, uh, Got in AA and was successful. Stayed busy in uh, in, uh, in AA for quite a few years. I don't know how many years sobriety he had, but just several years. And then they got with this bunch of you know social drinks after work and all that sort of jazz and uh, traveling on business and you know so much stuff revolves around the, the cocktail. And uh, he's called me the other day and told me, she said, he's back in, had 90 days sobriety. I said, great, hang in there, boy. <laughs> but I've completely turned loose on him. It's a lot easier to turn loose when they're 500 miles away than it is when they're 40 feet away. <laughs> okay, the sixth and the seventh step. Came entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character and I'm only asking him to remove our shortcomings. Uh, this, this step, these two steps can be equated to a pair of tweezers unutilized to extract the splinter from my hand. This don't give me immunity from splinters for the rest of my life, but if I do, I've got the tools to work with. Comfort does not motivate change. Discomfort motivates change. Okay? I don't usually respond to one of my character defects until it becomes a point to where it's hurting me so damn much I've got to do about it, do something about it. 
<laughs> so I got the tools to work with. But yeah, each time I say, or I may not, I say it audibly, but I'll think it in my guts or somewhere. But this time it ain't gonna work. But it always does. Thank God. <laughs> I can take the actions regardless of what the hell my motives are. And the results are really good as if my actions, my motives have been perfect to begin with. Made less of all persons at harm became willing to make amends to them all. How on this list of the names of some people who were already dead. And this bothered me. Until Chuck C. from Laguna Beach said one day when he was out there in Midland, said, Buck, you made amends to the dead when you became willing. So this released me there. The ninth step made direct amends to such people where possible except when they do so would injure them or others. I am trying to live an amended life as the result of these steps. I sat down years ago and wrote both of my boys a letter at the time they weren't living at home and went something like this. Dear son, I tried God knows to be a good daddy, but I fail many times and I hurt you. For all the times I hurt you, I want to ask that you forgive me. Period. No buts. And I want to tell you, Folks, there's nothing in the world like hearing your own child say, I love you and I forgive you. Even if they got a call collect to tell you. <laughs> Number two, son, the non-alcoholic. He and I are the non-alcoholic in the family. Uh, we used to get into arguments quite frequently. We don't much anymore. Uh, the oldest boy is 38 and the youngest one is 34. And uh, this was like 10, 15 years ago. And we were in an argument. His mother had gone to an AA meeting. We were in an argument and uh, it became obvious to me all of a sudden, you know, what, what, what this was, why he was so edgy. Because it surfaced like something ugly out of a uh, muddy water, you know, and just bobbed there. And I saw it in all of its ugliness. And he felt obligated to love me because I was his father. When I realized that, I said, look, son, I love you, but you'll have to love me just because I'm your father. If you do, that's great. That's strange benefits. But the have to is gone. You're free. You don't have to love me. I wanted him to, but I didn't tell him that. <laughs> well, that's kind of stopped the argument. And few minutes, the TV program was over and it was rather late. He says, I'm going to bed, Dad. I said, fine, good night, son. He got about halfway up the stairs, turned around, says, hey, Pop. I said, what do you want? He said, I sure do love you. Folks, that's where I live. He couldn't give me his love until he had the freedom to not give it. And this is a spiritual principle. In, in giving him his freedom, I bound him closer to me than he's ever been before. And a spiritual principle is often a paradox. Uh, he, he went on upstairs and went into his room, and I had to get up out of the den and go back into the utility room, utility room and weep tears of gratitude. Just because I gave him this total freedom.
You didn't have to love me. But when you do that, you know, this is a spiritual principle. It works for me. It'll work for you. Now, God has forgiven me, and my kids have forgiven me, and I have forgiven me by the grace of God. Because if I can't forgive me, this is an insidious form of spiritual pride, and I'm safe in this little cesspool I have dug for myself and filled with my own vomit, because that's what self-judgment is. God has forgiven me, they have forgiven me, and by the grace of God, I have forgiven me. At this point in the program, at the bottom of page 83 and the top of page 84, this is not a verbatim quote from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. There's some promises that are given after the ninth step. It says, we're painstaking about this phase of our development before we're half through. We're going to be knowing new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will comprehend serenity and we will know peace. Fear of people and an economic insecurity will leave us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not, for they are being fulfilled among us sometimes quickly and sometimes slowly, but they will always materialize if we work for them. Now, that's not a verbatim quote, but you look it up yourself to find out what it actually says. That's the promises after the ninth step. Continue to take personal inventory when I'm wrong, promptly admit it's the tenth step. I don't like it. You say I have to like it, just as I have to do it. That's right. So I take the action regardless of what my motives are at the time. Then the end result after I take the action, 99% of the time is as good as if my motives had been perfect to begin with. So I act myself back into good thinking. I can't get back the other direction. I can't think of myself into good acting. Okay. The eleventh step, seek through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with God praying only for knowledge of his will for me and the power to carry it out. My efforts at this step is kind of like trying to read the, the uh, Al-Anon book at night in the dark by lightning flash. <laughs> and it as sure as hell is brilliant when it comes, but it doesn't last very long. Okay, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message. What message? The message of my own spiritual awakening. How did it come about? The result of these steps. And practice these principles in all of our affairs. The result of these steps. It's hardly likely I'm going to have a spiritual awakening as a result of the 11 preceding steps that I have not taken. I've had some luck at 12-7 alcoholics as well as, well as Al-Anon. And I want to tell you about a few of them. We're running out of time here. My sister in 1962, along about the time Francis had to go to the Big Spring State Hospital, my sister in 1962 reached bottom, and uh, mother was living in a little house behind her. She lived down in Sonora. She's a ranch woman, living in a little, in a little house behind my sis, and she's drinking a lot. And um, it was after dark, and Jim was drunk. She slapped Jim, my sister's name. She slapped mother. Mother was 80 years old at the time, and uh, Mother had this five-cell flashlight in her hand. She just cold-cocked her, you know, <laughs> right across the top of the head. 
Later on, my sis told me years after she'd been sober, uh, she said, you know, it took me clear to my knees. <laughs> but she wouldn't have told me at all prior to that. Anyway, uh, I went down to my sister's place. She lives 160 miles southeast of where I live. And uh, I prayed that she'd be sober when I got there. She wasn't sober, but she was dry. She was not drinking. After exchanging a few niceties, I said, come on, sis, we got some talking to do. So we sat down over a cup of coffee, and I first told, I told her I loved her. And uh, But then I said, there's one question I have to ask you. She said, yes, what's that? I said, do you want to stop drinking? She said, yes, I do, I can't, and I'm scared. So I took her to her first meeting, and then Banda took her to her second meeting, and I think to the third meeting. And uh, she now attends AA at the local level. She wouldn't go in the place where she lived at first, you know, because everybody would know her. I'm sure nobody here ever did anything like that. <laughs> I didn't think you did, okay? Anyway, uh, she now has 23 years of sobriety. July the... Thank you. July the 26th, 1962, she took her last drink. There's a guy that lives about three and a half blocks from me in Midland who in 1963 had reached bottom. He was working for the same company I was working with. I was, we were professional acquaintances, what it was. We weren't close friends then. We are now. But then we were just professional acquaintances, and uh, they had run him off, fired him that day. And I tried to call my wife's sponsor, Bob White, who's dead now. I tried to call him at noon, and I just finally got a hold of him and told him what was going on, that Archie had been fired, and I was trying to con him and to go over and trust up <coughs> going over and trust up in Archie. Well, who in the hell ever heard of an Alanon con, a con artist? Don't work that way. The next thing I knew, he had me talked into it, and I was fixing a knock on the door, and I thought, my God, what am I doing here? And that was a reverent prayer. It was not profanity. And Archie came to the door, and we exchanged a few niceties, and I said, Archie, you know, real subtle. I got one question I've got to ask you. He said, what's that? And I told him, I said, you want to stop drinking? Well, he was vulnerable that day. He had been fired. He said, yes, I do, and I can't. Well, there wasn't a meeting at our club that night, but they're having a meeting the following night over in Odessa, and Bob and Harold were talking, two great AAs. And so Marceline and Francis and I and Archie went with Bob and, and Harold. <laughs> And Harold talked over to Basin Club in Odessa that night, and Archie identified that first night. And then he went to start going to the 710 Club, and, you know, I didn't carry the message to the alcoholic. I carried the alcoholic to the message. <laughs> and about 2,000 years ago, this man carried a sick man to a meeting, and God, as I understand him, was in person. And it's such a crowd they couldn't get in, so they let him down through the roof. And he said, your faith, your belief in the power of God in yourself has made him whole. Not in so many words, but that's what he meant. I carried the message, carried the alcoholic to the message. I couldn't carry the message to the alcoholic. One more, and I'll stop on this one. This a guy in Midland that's a successful independent operator now. He's been dry since... 
uh, March of 69. Uh, his wife called up the commission on alcoholism to see if they had somebody come out and have her. He'd been off on running drunk for about six weeks, and uh, she does kind of out in the country. And I'm about as anonymous as the phone book in Midland. And that's exactly the way I want it because they, they got somebody's name that they can hang on to and say, here, call this guy. And uh, so uh, she, they referred me to her, and I get talked to her during the lunch hour. And it was still March of 69. There still had snow on the ground there in Midland. And uh, I couldn't get out there that afternoon, but I told her, I said, I'll come out tomorrow afternoon and bring you some literature. And uh, so the next afternoon rolled around, and after work I started out there, and then I was restored to sanity because I had momentarily. I had a mental picture of me sitting there talking to this woman and this drunken husband come in. So I went back to town and got me an island on a woman. Then we went out there. Okay, now you're catching on. <laughs> okay, anyway. We sat there and talked for a while, and the situation gravitated into Maxine ended up talking to Joanne. Maxine was an old, was an Al-Anon member, and, and uh, Joanne is the prospective Al-Anon member. And I ended up talking to T.J. because he came in just about the time we got there. God, he looked raunchy. And uh, I just like, I'd give him a bullet, you know, one of the old cliches that never, that used to never fail, you know, and they just ricochet off him just like bullets off an armor plate. And I kept on for maybe 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes, I don't know. And we decided to leave, and we got outside that door and got in the car. I told Maxine, I said, well, there's one thing I know for sure. That son of a bitch ain't never going to quit drinking. <laughs> Hadn't had drink since then. <laughs> I don't know what the hell they look like when they're ready. Yeah, I don't know. They don't have any sign up here. <laughs> but it doesn't say that in the 12th step. It says we tried to carry the message. That's all we have to do. And every time I try to carry the message, even when it's unsuccessful, I come away from it feeling better in the long run. Okay? I'm going to close now with a little poem that was my love of poetry that drove my wife to drink. I hope it doesn't have any bad results here. But this starts off by, it's Robert's service, and it tells something about God as I understand him. It talks, starts very, very beautifully, very simply, and then it ends up very beautiful. Because I wish that I could understand the moving marvel of my hand. I watch my fingers turn and twist and the supple bending of my wrist, the dainty touch of fingertip, the steel intensity of grip. A tool of exquisite design with pride, I think it's mine, it's mine. And there's a wonder of my eyes, for houses, hills, seas and skies and waves of light converge and pass and print themselves as on a glass. Line, form and color live within me, I am the beauty that I see. I could write a book of sighs about the wonders of my eyes. And the wonder of my heart it plays so faithfully its part. I hear it running sound and sweet, and it never seems to miss a beat. Between the cradle and the grave, it never falters, staunch and brave. Alas, I have not the art to tell the wonders of my heart. And there's a wondrous wonder of my brain, that marvelous machine that brings all consciousness and wonderings. It lets me find myself leap out 
and watch my body walk about. It's hopeless. All my words are vain to tell the wonders of my brain. But do you think, O oh, patient friends who hear these stanzas to the end, that I myself would glorify? You're just as marvelous as I, and all creation in our view is quite as marvelous as you. Then come, let us on the seashore stand and wonder at a grain of sand, or into the meadow pass and marvel at a blade of grass, or cast our visions high and far, and thrill with wonder at a star, a host of stars, night's holy tent, huge, glittering, with wonderment. If wonder be in great and small, then what of him who made it all? In eyes and brain and heart and limb, let's see the wondrous work of him. In house and hill, in sword and sea, in bird and beast, in flower and tree, in everything from sun to sod, the wonder and the awe of God. Ladies and gentlemen, when we came there, Alnon thought it was the end. And it was. It was the end of the beginning. Take this message, not the one I give you, the one you get after you've fired any portion of this conference through the crucible of your own experience, and give the refined product to another person, and your own soul will increase. This is new wine, ladies and gentlemen. You can't put it in those old wine skins, and you can't sew this new cloth on that old garment. I think this is another way of saying half measures avail us nothing. I asked for help just before I got up here. If God is dead, he died since then.